Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the program. We are your host, Aaron and Matthew Miller, as we do our war cry and let slip the dogs of war once more unto the breach we go with this war of the Rephaim. The problem herein lies. Is there any way to take historical documents? Can we line up history with the facts of the matter? The fact of the matter obviously being the Word of God. When you look into the ancient documentation, you come upon this epic story. The story goes something like this. There is a survivor that has a tyrant for a son. This tyrant slaughters his own children until there is one that escapes and becomes the hero and kills this tyrant. Does this have any basis in the biblical text? Does this play a part in the biblical narrative? More importantly, does it play a part in the prophetic narrative? Is this woven into the fabric Of what is to come? This is the question. When we take a look at historical documentation, you have all kinds of resources. But really, when the rubber hits the road, there's one thing you have to come to grips with as far as biblical chronologies are concerned. This is the Sumerian king's list. You can't get past it. You can't ignore it. You have to come to grips with how this document may very well prove the Bible to be true. This is what we need to ask ourselves. Or is it a complete farce altogether? With this in mind, take note that, well, the Sumerian Kings list plainly states this, that the kingship descended from heaven. That should make you stop the bus. It's time for you to check yourself. What is this narrative trying to say? So when we put this to the backdrop of this epic tale, Aaron, what do you find in these ancient texts? And when you look at the ancient text, is there any rhyme or reason to them? Is there any even reason to try to compare them with biblical chronology? Yes, because... um, Okay, so like I said, the Bible refers to these certain events very vaguely. Um, I believe Genesis, I mean Isaiah chapter 14 is implying this, uh, uh, the event which we talked last time, the tyrant being slain by, um, by Nimrod. And so 
we have that part, and then we have that that reference in scripture that Nimrod was a giant hunter, and he took down Babylon, which means so if the Bab whoever was ruling Babylon seems to have attempted to ascend to heaven for whatever purpose, and so um, the Bible re references these vaguely, but it does not go into hardcore detail. So like I told you, um, I we we go via where there are two or more witnesses to events. Okay, so we had to go, so we were going to secular, um, many of them pagan texts. Yes, Sumerian king list is a pagan text. Mm -hmm. but, Correct. But it has, um, so I checked them. I had multiple of this, of documents referring to the kings uh, that, that, that reigned in Sumer, and I took all these documents and compared them, and they were pretty much, not only did they agree with each other, but they agreed with the scripture. And that's something that we're going to eventually uh, talk about, talk about the antediluvians, the people who lived before the flood, and what they had to say about that. But um, this this um, text, um, uh, once I was going through it, I was like, is Keterologomar of Genesis chapter 14, is he there? Okay, so um, we here, my dad alluded to the fact that there was going to be a war, that there was a war of the Raphaim, and in the um, and the Greeks called this war the Titanomachy. That was well known among uh, once Alexander took everything over. That started getting integrated into other mythologies. This is key critical that we realize why we're touching base with this anyway. We stated. In earlier broadcast, the reason why this is so critical is for some reason, everybody thinks that God sent the flood to kill the Nephilim. That is not the truth. No, the Bible states the flood was to wipe out the sins of man. So this is key critical that we get this background info about this war of the Rephaim. It's absolutely key critical to the prophetic narrative itself. So Genesis chapter 14 um, starts out with, it happened in the days of Amraphel, king of Sumer, Ariok, king of uh, Elisar, Kedarlomer, uh, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goem, made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adama, and Shemeber, king of Zebom, and the king of Bela, and the same is Zoar. All these joined together in the valley of Sidim or it could be translated the Valley of Demons, which is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Keterlogomar, and on the thirteenth year they rebelled. On the fourteenth year Keterlogomar came, and the kings were with him, and struck the Rephaim, and Esteroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim, and Maham, and the Emim, and Sheva, Keriathaim, and the Horites, and the Mount Seir, to Alparan, which is, in, which is by the wilderness. They returned and came to and Mishpat, which is Kadesh, and struck all the country of the Amalekites and all the Amorites who lived in Hezazon Tamar. Um, so here we see a bunch of kings, but the leader clearly of this kings is Keterlomar. He had to be of this line. He had to show up in this list somewhere. He is he is your pivot point inside the scripture to the Sumerian kings list. Yes. And so he 
um, where would he be? And I remember, and I was actually, I can, I found a Sumerian lexicon online, which helped me immensely, by which I could try, I could figure out what the name Keterlomar meant in uh, the original Sumerian language, which it was spoken in. And so um, Keterlomar um, sounded a lot, uh, I, I knew that the, the last part, Lomar, the Greek renders it Logomar. And so it sounded a, li a lot like the very common word in Sumerian text, Lugal, which means a king. And so I, I used that word and searched the Sumerian kings list, and I was shocked about what it had to say. And to you all surprise, the Sumerian kings list has Terah, the, the father of Abraham, and his brother Nahor in the list. And I was even shocked that it goes even all the way down to Laban. So we have that evidence pointing straight to um, what happened in the Sumerian, in the times of the Sumerian king list. So um, a few lines down, uh, this shows up. And it says that uh, Lugal Katun ruled for 36 years, 12 kings. They ruled for 2,310 years. Then Uruk was defeated, and the kingship was taken to Ur. <laughs> was taken to Ur. <laughs> okay, so not only does Lugalkatun, it sounds like Karolomar's name simply inverted. inverted. It's inverted. God has riddled it to you. The two parts of his name are inverted. Are <laughs> the first part shows up as the last and sets. So this Lugal Katun, it says that he, he is defeated and the kingship is moved to Ur. And we know in the scriptures that what happened in this war of the Raphaim, Abraham shows up, kills everyone. Mm -hmm, that's right. And then just to take Lot. So, um, and this, and I was like, and where was Abraham's family? In Ur. Yeah, it was an Ur. So, um, so I even went into this. Um, this um, this person who I think is Tara, his father, Mesh Pada. and it. I think it rather. I'm just gonna look into that. Um, so it says in this, uh, they they found if you look up his name in. Um, uh, on Wikipedia, they have they reference a certain um, lapis luzi bead that they found in the area of uh, Mari. It's called the treasure, the so-called treasure of Ur. It says the the God, the Lord of the land, which I could interpret the God, the Lord of the universe. Mesanapadara, mm -hmm. the king of Ur, son of Meskalamadug, king of Kish, has consecrated this bread. So this takes reference to the one true God. Right. It is otherwise in a dedication to a local ruler named Salim of Mari. Like the king of Salem. Like the king. That's what it sounded like to me. The king of Salem. And then, even though Abraham himself doesn't show up on the list, guess who does? Uh, I guess there's another dedication in tablet of King Anapadat. It says, for... um. King Anapadada, son of Mesanapadada. So 
So here, there are two brothers. Only one of them rules. So we know Abraham doesn't rule that area because it's not his inheritance. Right. He doesn't want anything to do with it. He's, his inheritance is the promised land. Yeah. And simply, and the name um, Ayana Pada, Pada means father from heaven. And that's a big part of Abraham's name. That's a bit, that's a huge part of Abraham's name. <laughs> yes. And so, this statement makes huge sense. Um, we, the brother who rules, the Bible names him Nahor. Exactamundo. And so, and then once you go down that, let's go back to the Sumerian kings list. It goes even further to, it names all the way down to Balulu, which um, could very well be a form of Laban. A form of Laban. Once again, taking into consideration that you found the first name, which was the pivot point to the scriptures, had been inverted. Say that name one more time. Balulu. You can easily take the first and last syllables, swap them, and come up with Laban. Very easily. And, you know, um, the one before him, Elulu, um, that simply has the last part of Bethuel, his father's name. Right. And this goes, and, uh, like, this line, the Sumerian kings list, when we say that it's accurate, <laughs> it's accurate via the scripture. Scripture can can be lined up straight with this way too easily. Right. So you're saying that scripture itself justifies the text. Yeah. So with that in mind, how does this tie in? Does this give us the technical data we're looking for? Does this give us the names we need to know? What was being incited to riot? Who is this hero? Now, we already stated before that this hero was obviously Nimrod in the biblical text. Mm -hmm. So, when we go to – let's just take this to an elementary level. Everybody knows Greek mythology, correct? Mm -hmm. And you would call the tyrant who in Greek mythology? Kronos. Kro correct. Okay, now, he has a son that escapes his slaughter prophetically. We know that this could be alluding to the slaughter of the innocents, right? Because Cronus was slaying all of the children, correct? But one survives. Who was that one? That was Nimrod. In the Greek mythology, that's Zeus, mm -hmm. correct? So, once we take that in mind, we, we begin to realize we can come to grips with what the Bible is telling us if we can put the if we can bash in the right code. If we can plug in the right names. So what do you think is going on here? And does this have anything to do, you know, does Isaiah chapter 14 tie into this narrative? What's your thought? Okay. So um, via certain mythologies, we he had that um, the survivor, who in Greek mythology would be Uranus, had two sons. One was the tyrant and another one, Enki, in the... Babylonian texts, which sounds to me like Anak of the Bible. Anak line, the Anak line of giants were the ones who were inhabiting Canaan. Okay, so we have one line here. So this ties us to the biblical Anak. Yeah. Okay. And so and, and so in the scripture, 
um, Joshua 14, verse 15 vaguely mentions um, the survivor, does not give his name, but it says, I, um, uh, it was after the greatest man among the Anakim. And then it moves on um, in, in Joshua 15, verse 13. It says, even Kerjath Arba, named after the father of Anak. So, this Kerjath Arba, you're not given the survivor's name. Yeah. You're not given the survivor's name. Just an alluding to thereof. So it kind of leaves it out in the open. But you've established that there's two lines here. One is Anak. Who would the other be? The other one would be the line that in, was take that came, descended um, from uh, Nimrod's rule. So Nimrod seems – I have no evidence that Nimrod had any children of his own. It seems that he passed the kingship on to one of his generals, one who helped him, who could have been his uh, a, a brother illegitimately, is Lugal Benada, um, or basically son of the king. And it makes me wonder, the Lugal, I told you means king, right. could this be Melchizedek? <laughs> so it makes me wonder, <laughs> if not, he would be his son, Dumuzid, the last part, Zid, Zedek. Yeah. They both mean yeah. righteousness. Righteousness. They both mean righteousness. So what you're trying to say is what this text could be alluding to. Nimrod did not have a son, but he passed the kingship on to Melchizedek. Yeah. And this would make sense. Why he's Melchizedek, while Melchizedek comes to bless Abraham because the kingship had been unrightfully taken from him. Right. And he comes down into that valley and he straightens everybody's kinks out because of Lot. Mm -hmm. So this obviously works to Melchizedek's benefit, this war of the Raphaim. <laughs> so you're not only pivoting off of the biblical text, now you're justifying the secular text with it. Now it begins to make sense. Yeah. And um, for all of you who are interested, I, I suggest that you go up the line of um, – um, this isn't part of the Sumerian kingdoms, but you, if you look up Meshnapada um, on the list, the first king of Ur – just look up that. Um, there's uh, a line that goes before him, and it goes all the way back to Peleg, even Peleg. And you can see the name even perfectly. Um, uh, it, it, his name is spelled very differently, but it's spelled like Ur-Palamag, but it has the name Peleg in it. It has the name inside of it. God has riddled it to you. So it's it's it, it's amazing how um, these texts um, – the, the Sumerians were very accurate. But you have to have eyes that can see. You have to be looking for the truth in those documents. You first have to believe God's word and realize that everything will line up with that. Then you will be given eyes that can see and ears that can plainly hear as you see what the biblical text says is impregnated into that Sumerian king's list. Yep. So, so 
the um I haven't we haven't actually touched on the myth of the Titanomachy yet. So I realized that the there are actually two different stories of um of Kronos. Um and one of them an alternative version is in the Sublime Oracle. And when I studied it for a while, I realized these are two different events. The one event is the one that references Kronos killing his own children. That is the thing that happens during the time of Nimrod. The second, the actual Titanomachy, is a war between Kronos and his brother Titan. And his brother Titan, I think, represents the descendants of Anak. And this is that isn't actually Kronos himself, but a descendant of Kronos. So, so you're saying that encoded into the mythologies is this broken line of Anak and Nimrod. Yeah. So this is what it says. Um. Now, wait a minute before you start. Where are you reading from? This is um, the Sublime Oracles, uh, Book Three, and this be I'm going to begin. Um, at verse 135, or line 135, giving to them names both heaven and earth since they were very first of mortal men. So there were three divisions of the earth according to the allotment of each man, and each one, having his own portion, regained and fought not. For a father's oath were equal to their portion. But the time completed of the old age of the fathers to come, and he died, and the sons infringing oaths stirred up against each other bitter strife. Eat which one, <clears throat> which one should have royal rank and rule over all mortals, and against each other, Kronos and Titan fought. But Rhea and Gaia and Aphrodite fond of crowns, Demeter and Hestia and Dione um, of fair looks, brought them to friendship. Together called all who were kings, both brothers and near kin, and others of the same ancestral blood, they judged Kronos should be reigned king of all. He was the oldest and noblest of them. But Titan laid on Kronos mighty oath to rear no male posterity that he himself might reign when the age and fate should come to Kronos. And whenever Rhea bore her beside her, um, whenever Rhea bore, beside her sat the Titans and all males in, in pieces tore, but all the females live to be reared by the mother. So, first, there's a treaty. There is a treaty where Kronos says that he won't have any children, and when his reign is done, his brother can take his place. And we're told about this in Genesis chapter 14. It says, for 13 years, they remained subject. And then they rebelled on the 13th year. Yep. So, um, and then it says... <clears throat> To be reared by mother. But when now the third birth, the August Rhea bore, she brought forth Hera first. And they saw a female offspring, and the fierce titan men betook them to their homes. Thereupon Rhea, a male ch child bore, having bound three men of Crete by oath. She quickly sent him to Phrygia, which is in, in uh, Syria, or mm -hmm. Aram, um, to be reared apart in secret. Therefore did they name him Zeus, for he was sent away. And thus she sent Poseidon also secretly away, and Pluto, or Hades, did Rhea again, noblest of men, to Dodona bear 
once flows Euroclus. Okay, and then it moves on and says, And then the Titans heard that there were sons kept away secretly, whom Cronus and his wife, Rhea, begat. Then Titan, sixty youths together gathered, held fast in chains Cronos and his wife Rhea, and concealed them in the earth and guarded them in bonds. And when the sons of the powerful Cronos heard, a great war and uproar they aroused. And this is the beginning of a dire war among mortals. For it was indeed with mortals the prime origin of war. And then did God award the Titans evil, and all of Titans and Cronos born died. Interesting indeed. So he says these two lines are completely put into, well, we know not completely, but they're put down. How not completely is a good question because we have our explanation here in Genesis chapter 14 and verse 13. And one who had escaped came and said, told Abraham, the Hebrew. He's the one who told him about Lot. Now, it is generally considered that Og is this. One who escaped. Who escaped. The scripture says that he was of the remnant of the Raphaim. The last, actually, in, in, in exact words. And he, to our surprise, I believe also shows up in the Sumerian king's list. Let's go all the way back. And it says that Halel, who it names Enmen Bargesi, it says that Aga, the son of Enmen Bargesi, ruled for 625 years. Then Kish, the king tip, was taken to Anana. So um, we see this character, Aga, of Kish, show up in other Sumerian documents where they say Gilgamesh came up and um, Gilgamesh came uh, into war against this Aga of Kish because Kish threatened to take things from his land in tribute. But Gish, but Gilgamesh has mercy on him, allows him to escape. And this gives us indication that this Aga of Kish is who came and told Abraham, hey, they've taken Lot. Not only that, he's Aga Bashan. <laughs> and this is how he survives. Here, incorporated into this text is the reason why you have this survivor in Genesis chapter 14 coming, bearing witness to Abraham. And then Abraham goes down into the valley and makes demons of them for sure. So, putting these strings together just begins to blow your mind, correct? When you begin to incorporate things. Now, did you have any place where you could pin the tail on the donkey from other sources? And and I will bring this up just forthrightly. Did you use any of David Roll's uh, conclusions? Uh, did you find them relevant or useful yeah. in this text? Da um, David Roll was the uh, um, references from his books um, that led me to identify Enmerkar in the Sumerian king list with Nimrod. How? How? How can you get Enrikar from Nimrod? Um, simply the name, if you were to put it down in, in words, uh, it, it makes phonetic sense. So Kar, the part at the end, means hunter. Okay. So 
Um, N, mer, car. So N, beginning part, is simply a um, a title means means lord. But you can shorten that to just ni. Okay. In Nimrod or ni, and then mer, and that okay. just make you um, mra. And all you have to do is simply add the D at the end for phonetic reasons. The name appears also as Ninurda or uh, Marduk in other texts. But phonetically, it makes sense. Not only that, he's the first king to rule over Uruk, which the scripture says was part of his kingdom. And he became king, and um, it lines up with other characters. And so, um, and also, this is the one who comes and kills the tyrant, and men Bargasi. And so, this makes amazing sense. This, um, this, um, because of David Rule pointing this to me, I, before I had been confused because I couldn't, I couldn't pinpoint names, but I think between the lines, the problem was is that be between the lines, uh, um, you, it talks about the um, after the flood, the it descends to Kish, and then it goes um, on for a few years until it lines ends up on Anbargasi. Uh, so this this uh, this gap right here of a bunch of um, strange names, they're all Akkadian. They all have Akkadian origins, while the rest of the text has Sumerian origins in the names. So I don't know what these this means. If it's a line, if, if this, if the chronicler was just shoving this in because he didn't know where else to put it, or if it's just a repeat of names. But because of this, because of David Roll pointing this out to me, I was able to um, continually crack things with this text. Okay, so this is where, because he gave you these these phonetics, mm -hmm. and you have to realize, you know, people really don't realize that Hebrew is such a very simplistic language because God has taken the vowels. Because of that, you basically have a Nimrod, you have N-R-M, correct? I mean, yeah. you basically have to reduce it down to just the consonants. It has no vowels. Once he opened your eyes to that, this is where you begin to realize that, wait a minute, that one king, the main king in Genesis 14, that is his name, it's just been inverted. So that's where you got the idea to do that, to start looking into the phonetics of the word itself. Yeah. Very good, very good. This is, this is really exciting when you realize... Now these texts play their part in Bible prophecy. Now you have to realize that it was in these texts that gave you the additional data needed for you to realize why there was even a war of the Rephaim. It was because the flood was never designed to kill them. The book of Enoch plainly states that no, the flood didn't wipe out the Nephilim. That's not what happened. The flood wiped out the man's wickedness. That's what the Bible says. It says that the book of Enoch plainly states that it was the angels that incited the Nephilim to war one with another, correct? Yeah. 
It's a separate... The book of Enoch separates the judgment. It doesn't say that the flood came to kill the giants. It doesn't say that. It says it says that the that the giants were sent against each other to kill each other. That's right. We're not even told how long that was before the flood, but it doesn't matter. It was a separate judgment. The flood didn't come to judge them. So, and that was a that's a very big thing to note. Huge to note because that's what it, I mean. It subconsciously when you ask somebody. Well, first off, if you're t talking about this with Christians, you, there, there's a very slim chance that they're going to even believe Genesis 6. Very slim chance. I'm sure you encountered this at Bible school, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Be honest with me. How many of your professors – well, no, that's that's a little touchy situation. How many of your fellow students did you talk with about this, and they're like, well, you're crazy, man. There was no – angels didn't have sex with women. None of them. Uh, the ones that I talked to were pretty accepting to the idea, but I talked to a few professors who disagreed with interpretation. But So let me get this right. Your fellow students had never heard of this at all. No. Actually, um, when I had been explaining to one of my friends about the second incursion, he said, wow, I've been lied to all my life. Well, this is key critical. Okay. The, the, the simple fact that Boy, you have to cross this border to even be able to talk with the subject intelligently with other Christians. Yes, yes, it did happen. That's what the Bible says. Now, once you cross that bridge, it it seems like even if you can discuss the topic of giants with anybody, they insist that the flood wiped them out. That's what they insist. They, they, they will insist upon that. And... That's not what the biblical narrative says. So even if you can discuss the topic of giants, they are completely illiterate on what exactly took care of the problem. Yeah, it's very poor hermeneutics uh, that, to interpret the sons of God at Genesis chapter 6 as being anything other than angelic. Very, very poor. You get the people, who, the same people who will say that they're humans. Those same people will say that the the sons of God in Job are angels. To be good hermeneutics right. is being consistent. Right. Well, well, and being bad hermeneutics is when you con contradict yourself. Yeah. Uh, but you know, you and I talked about this the other day. They do this for more than one reason. They must make uh, uh, Genesis. Uh, six say whatever they want to say. It can't be angelic. It must be human because that keeps the ball in our court, right? It keeps the ball in our court. And, you know, one of the trick questions, you know, let, let me just ask you. We know what demons are, you and I. You have been taught from the beginning, have you not? Yeah. Did I not shove a Bible in your face and say, figure it out? I believe whatever it says, right? Yeah. So, when you got school, what do people think that demons are? Fallen angels. And they actually think that they can play and survive an encounter with the angelic. That's a farce in itself. Yeah. The scripture even teaches us uh, in, in Jude not to revile angelic. Angelic, angelic majesties. It even includes Satan among them. It says that Michael did not dare 
blaspheme against him. And so, if Satan was a demon, why would Jesus tell us to rebuke them? If we're not supposed to rebuke angelic majesties, that's just con contradictory. If I rebuked a demon, I would be blasphemed against it, literally. Then what must always be hidden in the shadows is this. A demon is obviously not an angelic majesty. And when people, when I talk about, you know, angels have the ability to take a physical form, they, that makes, they'll say, oh, only if God wants them to. And you're like, really? How, where does it say that? I mean, <laughs> where does it? But, and you yeah, always and, have that problem. But you where does it say that? They. Yeah. But that's an issue. Is it? That's even still an issue. Like they, they, the angels. How do they take a physical? How can a disembodied spirit, who you think is immaterial, how can it take something on material? Right. Then, and we can only explain right. this is that if it's already something material, but is able to transform itself. Right. So, um, so. No, when somebody when I actually I remember beginning beginning of college I had a conversation with someone about um, one of the reasons why I think angels are are not demons is because angels clearly have physical attributes, including the ability to produce children. Oh my goodness, I'm I'm surprised that didn't get you ejected from school <laughs> right square right there. Um, well, you know you have to come to grips with this that even Peter plainly states, the scripture loudly screams, they clothe themselves in flesh. You go back to Genesis. All flesh was corrupted. You circle right back around to the New Testament. It plainly says that, you know, the flesh of animals is of one kind, the flesh of this is another kind, the flesh of this is another kind. You have to come to grips with what the Bible says. It just it just reciprocates the same thought over and over and over again. Yeah, and the first thing they're going to point to you is the scripture that says, um, angel, um, that when we in we are in the resurrection, that we will be like the angels and not Mary. Um, but that also is very poor hermeneutics. <laughs> yes, that's very poor. Okay, um, you're. Bible will say sons of the resurrection. I actually made a post of this on on Facebook, publicly denouncing the Sethite view. Sethite view or Sethite lie? I would say Sethite deception. That that's what I would say. I'd say Sethite deception. So the parallel verse in in a, in the synoptics, um, the parallel verse in Luke is Luke twenty verse thirty six. For they can't die anymore, for they are like angels. And are children of God, being sons of resurrection. Okay, and beforehand it says, um, <clears throat> now I'm just going to begin. It says, Jesus said to them, the children of this age marry and are given in marriage. But they who are considered worthy to attain to the age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. They cannot die anymore, for they are like angels. And are children of God, being children of the resurrection. So taking this poor, this actually in in context... When it references being able to marry, it's not necessarily saying that's why they're compared to the angels. It's they're equal to the angels in that they're eternal. In that they are eternal beings born of the resurrection. Yeah. And even still, the book of Enoch explains this. Verse 
uh, in chapter uh, 16, I believe, it says, I did not give you wives. I did not give you females because you were to be eternal. Because you were to be eternal. They needed no propagation. Yeah, and that was – and so it explains it there. And when it says they don't marry, does marry does, – does marriage have any – when you say that people don't get married, does that have anything to do with whether or not they have kids? No. What about the, what about the people who never get married who have 20 kids? Right. What about the people who get married and have no kids? Yep. That has – marriage is is a bond to your partner. Right. You may not necessarily have a child. If you are sterile, per se, marriage, the angels were not meant for marriage. And that's what these angels were doing. It says they took wives of whomever they chose. Right. They were disobeying the thing that God set in place. Enoch particularly says that they polluted themselves with the flesh of women. They had cloven themselves to these human wives. So, this backdrop is all key critical. Understanding, realizing why, well, particularly Genesis chapter 14 is there. And this valley of Sedim, this literally in the Hebrew, this means valley of demons. And you're told illicitly that this is the salt sea, correct? This is the Salt Sea. Now, we know this is the Dead Sea now, right? Yeah. Literally, the salt content is so high, you can float on the water quite easily. Yeah, this is this is the perfect way. Like, like even historians will accept the fact that Sodom and Gomorrah existed, but you can't find them. They're at the bottom of the sea. They're at the bottom of the Dead Sea. And um, how is this possible? Okay, so the scripture says that where the salt sea is, in, in Genesis chapter 14, it says there were tar pits. There were tar pits, yes. So, what what is tar? Tar is just oil, isn't it? Right. So it's just a fossil fuel that floats. Well, if you got water, what happens to oil when you put on warm water? It'll float on top of the water. So something happened with these, this bubble of oil burst and the water came through and the water came through but the salt content which was beneath was you know filled the entire area so this um some others will even say that this was some apocalyptic event by which the by which the sulfur was raining from the sky was actually coming up from a volcano someplace mm -hmm. was the um it coming up into the cloud of, as a cloud in the sky so Literally, there was some physical event that was caught that transformed the Valley of Sodom and Gomorrah into the Dead Sea. Yeah. Now, another amazing property about this is the high uh, level of, of different compounds there in the sea. It's absolutely a marvel. It is a, uh, a treasure trove of different elements. And you and I have talked about this before, that there was a reason why. That sulfur rained down with the fire. Something was physically happening with their flesh. With the angelic beings. Yes. This is this um uh in the scripture in um in Judges it describes 
the uh, the interaction between the angel of the Lord and uh, Manoah, the father of Solom, uh, Samson. And it says that he tells him to put the food on fire, and then he goes through the fire and ascends, ascends to heaven. Ascends to heaven. Yes. If you take this in, in a scientific understanding of it, this was a chemical reaction. He needed the fire to incite thermal uh, thermal uh, decomposition, is what it's called, thermal decomposition. The heat of the flame produced a chemical reaction by which he could transform again to a next form. Transform his flesh. Yeah. Okay. So by which he he would have shed ashes, of course. Right. Ashes from his his body and ascended through this. The same thing could happen raining sulfur. Sulfur is it easily can be set on fire. And this is falling from the sky, sets their bodies and forces them forces them to shift flesh. Yeah, to shift into a, a different form. Right. So, um, so let let me make myself clear. What we're saying, what I am saying here, this is bringing into the topic this 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 idea of skinwalkers. They can literally clothe themselves in whatever type of flesh they want. This introduction of a sulfuric rain of fire forced them to change their their skin suit forced them to change the skin they were walking in into something else. Yeah, and if you see this in the Book of the Giants, the fragments of the Book of the Giants, it describes this is what the angels were using in war against the Watchers. It says they were fighting them with fire and brimstone. And so that makes a lot of sense. It tells us that was why God sent fire and brimstone on Gomorrah and Sodom. He was putting an end to what was going on there. Because... Once they made their flesh change, they couldn't interact with the human women. Now, now I want you all to consider Jude uh, 1, verse 7. Okay? So this is the scripture that we use to um, that proves the, um, the second incursion. It says, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, having in the same way as these given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth in, as an example of suffering to punishment of eternal fire. So um, your commentators will tell you that this statement of strange flesh means homosexuality. But the no. very – if you go into the Greek, it says quite the opposite. It right, says right. heteros. That's right. It says heteros. <laughs> yep, it sure does. Strange word actually means another flesh. It, it means different flesh. So that's the opposite. That's actually the opposite of homosexuality. Right. Exactly. But it's in the statement, another flesh, it's saying it's not human. And even still, it's saying that it may not even be animal either. Right. It's something else, i.e. what I just stated. Somehow, this fiery brimstone forced their flesh to change so humans could not be impregnated by it or corrupted by it. They were changed physically into something else. It forced them up the chemical tree or down the chemical tree. We've talked about this as plainly represented when we know the physics of a star going supernova. We know the Bible plainly states that in the end, their seteros seed, the Greek says seteros, that, that is iron, their iron seed literally will not mingle with human flesh. 
We know what 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 makes a star go supernova is once the chemical compound underneath enough temperature pressure is changed to iron. Boom. So so yeah, this was this was a big thing in understanding coming to a, a, a hypothesis to what angels are made of, what they are, was understanding a star because they are equated to stars many times in scripture. Yes. And a star, why does it, how does it burn without oxygen? Because fire on Earth has to have oxygen to burn. Of course, in outer space, they have no oxygen. This is because it's using a different process. When it, It's called nuclear fusion. When atoms are forced together so with such an intense power that they gain another electron or more electrons, it literally changes into another element. It doesn't right. change into a molecule, another element. Right. That is it, that cannot be fabricated with human hands, at least currently. They say they're trying to pull this off in in, in China, but why so hard? Is that it's an immense amount of power to do that. Right. But an angel, if it is actually a flaming fire, as uh, Psalm chapter one hundred and four verse four says, then this is how this is how they're able to shift into different elements. How they're able to change into other flesh is by this fusion reaction. And like my dad said, once they they hit iron, they're done. They're done. Once they hit iron, they're done. So very important that, that first off, this whole entire series about the Rephaim. It is key critical. You've got to believe the Bible first. Yeah. So, yeah. When, when, like in, I stated in the last show, this the idea of a giant surviving the flood does not eliminate the 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 second incursion. It doesn't do that because if there was no second incursion, then the giant seed would never have been survived to the days of David. Right. But everybody wants to fight against this thought, son. Because everybody, for some reason, has it in their mind that, no, the flood was sent to kill the Nephilim. But the no, point, it wasn't. The point, the good, a good thing to point at in this is that um, it seems like it's the Canaanites who are actually doing the process of the second incursion. The second incursion is surrounding Sodom and Gomorrah specifically, but also the cities in the whole valley. So this was Titan. This was Annex line. And this is why they're warring against Babylon, because they're saying, we have the right. So, um, and this is pretty interesting. Like, it was interesting to know that um, while we were talking here, I noticed that, um, that the Sublime Oracles mentioned the three sons of Kronos as Zeus, um, Poseidon, and... Hades. Right. And so, um, in this instance, Zeus is a different person. But, um, Zeus is not Nimrod, because this is, because this is where the two stories get confused. Right. But, um, when, let's go back to Genesis chapter 14, verse 2, uh, verse 1. There are four kings ruling in that area. Keter-Lagomar, or Lugar, Lugal Katun, and three others. Amraphal, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Alasar, and uh, Tidal, king of Goan. 
So these are his three sons. And they're helping him in war. And in the Sabaim Oracles, that lines up with the names of Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades. Yep. So, we have taken this text. We've taken it to task. What's your conclusions? Does this Sumerian king's list, does it add to the biblical narrative? Does it subtract from the biblical narrative? Or does it support the biblical narrative? It supports and adds. I see it supports and adds. That's exactly what the Book of Enoch does, correct? <laughs> yep. If it is, If it subtracts, it needs to be rejected. But when you're um, with these texts, when they line up with scripture, you gotta you, you should not just throw them entirely under the bus. And the next show that I want to do about more in depth about the antediluvians and the Sumerian kings was it tells us more about the history of what happened before the flood, which the Bible doesn't come out and directly tell us. So um, we do sometimes consider other documents, but of course, like I said, testimony of two witnesses. Well, amen to that. It is on the basis of two or three witnesses that a thing is established. Amen? Amen. So, uh, I didn't know we were going to do another show on this topic about what happened. Sumerian. Um, no, this is, this is going to be... This is going to be separate. This isn't going to be part of the Rephaim series, okay. right, but it's right. going to be on the Sumerian Kings list. And we are going to have to do an extreme uh, Q&A number three here probably this very day after supper. Um, so, uh, Aaron, what's our plans for the future? We are planning to do a um, documentary pretty soon. So, define documentary. You mean for YouTube? What What are we planning on doing? We're planning to go to uh, Amazon for now, if we can go even further, publish it other places. But yeah, um, we're, we're, we're presently thinking about doing it on the Book of Enoch, more specifically on my translation of it, doing... Right, the Arkham Fragments. The Arkham Fragments. So what's the... So what's your approach? I mean, you're going to try to cover the entire book, or what are you going to do? Um, it might be a series. Um, we are... Right now, basically, um, leading, allowing the Spirit to lead us, but um, currently it's most specifically going to be focusing on the Achman Fragments, which is mostly just the Book of the Watchers, but also contains the Book of the Words of Blessing, is what it's called, the first five chapters. Which is the Apocalypse of Enoch. Yeah, this is what we, we decided to call it, the Apocalypse of Enoch, just like we have the Apocalypse of Isaiah within the book of Isaiah. All right, good deal, good deal. All right, how can uh, everybody get a hold of you, Aaron? Um, you can get a hold of me on Facebook, on, on Messenger. If you have any questions or any ideas about topics, just let me know. And uh, you need to repost that questions um, questions post that you did so people can re-comment and post more questions because we will do an extreme Q&A 50 if need be. So, uh, everybody, if, you know, whatever questions you've got, um, just get your questions to Aaron or I, and uh, we shall take them to task. So, until next time, ladies and gentlemen, God bless. Godspeed. <laughs>
FringeRadioNetwork.com slash donate. We don't need your money to survive. We pay for the network with our own hard-earned cash. But if you want to help us grow and reach more people, just go to FringeRadioNetwork.com slash donate. For a donation of $20 or more, we'll send you a free network t-shirt. FringeRadioNetwork.com slash donate.